0: Welcome, everyone, to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. It's great to have you join us. Brian McKinley is joining us as well. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back. Well, Brian and I have been spending quite a bit of time talking about what causes us to do what we do, and we don't really reflect on that too much. We just go about our day and just do what we do, but there's a reason that we do what we do, and I think it's important that when we're not getting the outcomes we want to get in our life, we may want to start considering asking ourselves some questions in considering some self-examination as it relates to what motivates us, we've been talking about what motivates us is basically are because you know I do this because I want to win the approval of somebody or I need to meet the expectations of other people. We oftentimes find ourselves conforming to our society, conforming to our friends, conforming to our family, and we don't really consider. Is that really what we want motivating us? Because when we live a life of conformity, we're going along with what others believe, we're marrying what others value and copying what others do. Brian, do we find ourselves living in conformity, and why do you think that is?
0: Yeah, well, we certainly do. I mean, it's kind of the standard operating procedure for the human race, and I think it's evident in the natural world, so, like, there's an instinct in all animals to follow the instincts. So, you know, with any social animal, which humans are obviously a social animal, there is a compunction to go along with the flock, to hide in the herd and float with the flock, in order to survive, to be accepted, to have access to resources, to have access to friends and partners. So it really makes a lot of sense that humans would conform.
1: Yeah, so when I see raccoons, I see one raccoon and then I see another raccoon and I see another raccoon, they all seem to be doing the same thing. When I see one robin, I see another robin, I see another robin. They all seem to be doing the same thing. They're really conforming to the instinct that you're referring to. However, you know, we as human beings have this huge prefrontal cortex and is really there for us to consider being authentic. But what prevents us from being authentic? Why are we like every other animal and just feel a need to conform? instead of being authentic and real. Everyone talks about being authentic and real. Well, what does it mean to be your own person or be really who you are? How does that match into this equation of our need to conform and being real or authentic?
0: Well, it seems to me that it's just an unexamined life, which is this thing that we keep circling back around to. In the examined life, we're taking that from... Socrates, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yes. And I think that being that we have these exceptional brains, as far as we can tell, the most exceptional brains in the animal kingdom, we've got kind of a different hierarchy of needs than maybe the rest of the animal kingdom, and that comes out of having a complex brain. If you don't examine your life, you're going to conform to the way you were raised and you're going to conform to your peer group for better or for worse and I think that if you are examining your life in other words, if you're double checking your beliefs, checking in and reshaping your values from time to time enhancing your principles, adding new principles to help you become a better human being, then you are going to step into a place of considered behavior as opposed to conformist behavior. And that's what authenticity is. It's behaviors that have been thought out. Instead of just going with the flow, a person who's authentic has said, I, for my own reasons, am deciding to do this a certain way or to talk a certain way. So a person who's authentic has, through cognitive effort, pre-selected principles that support their realness and support them being the person that they have shaped. They have decided, I am going to be me. I'm not going to be the me that my dad wants me to be unless I have thought it out and considered all the other options. I'm not going to be the me that my mom wants me to be unless I have explored other options and decided that what my mom wants me to be is best. An authentic person doesn't go with the flow unless they have fully thought that out as what is right for them. An authentic person only does what they believe is right for them, and they champion their own realness. And, I mean, back in kind of the beatnik, day, like one of the main themes in Catcher in the Rye is this idea of phoniness and how everybody's so fake and phony, just doing what they're told, going with the flow, following the person in front of them. And the character that the author is speaking for is struggling with this idea of phoniness and how he doesn't want to be that way. And I think we all have a time in our lives where we feel like, I'm tired of being phony. I'm tired of little white lies that I tell to insulate myself or to protect other people. And if you want to change that, that's a journey of authenticity.
1: Well, I would agree with you, and I, you highlighted on, and I want to circle back and dissect the three components of transitioning from a conformist to an authentic, real person. It's important that we identify the three and talk about those a little bit. The first one you mentioned is, in order to be authentic, one needs to evaluate and decide what they truly believe. Even if they've been taught to believe something by their parent, they still need to evaluate and decide if that is what they truly believe. If someone has been taught to believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ, for example, they still need to evaluate and decide what they truly believe. Do they in fact believe in God? Do they in fact believe in Jesus Christ? And do they in fact believe in the Holy Spirit within them? They need to make that decision for themselves instead of just conforming to the will of their parents, teachers, and preachers. We said this a last time when we talked about Everything is dogma until we really run it through our prefrontal cortex and make a decision for ourselves. And most people don't do that. Most people just go along with everybody else. They don't want to think that hard. It's not easy to become authentic. You get to a point where you say, I'm just not going to go along with everybody else anymore. I'm just not going to go along and be this performance, it just doesn't feel good to me. It's not very fulfilling. It isn't what I want, and I feel uncomfortable. I feel anxious. I feel unaccomplished, or whatever all those feelings are. You really need to sit back and say, okay, in order for me to become really who I want to be and who I am, to be authentic, I really need to decide on what I truly believe. And that might mean sitting down with paper and pencil, writing down what it is you truly believe. And for me, when I started to do that, What I wrote down the very first time, what I truly believed, I found that what I was writing down weeks later was a modification of what I truly believed two months ago. And then when I continued to do that, my beliefs started to synthesize and come together and started to create a pattern or a picture of who I wanted to be and what I truly, truly believed. But it wasn't until I put purposeful intention on looking at what I truly believe instead of just accepting all of the beliefs that have been thrown on me, hook, line, and sinker. So what do you think about that, Brian, for our first part of this process of deciding what we truly believe? Have you had an experience going through that for yourself?
0: Yeah, and I think everyone does. When I was young, someone told me one of the best things you could ever do is just move out of your parents' house. Even if you're not going away to college, you got to get out and start to live your own life and think your own thoughts. So I think that's the beginning for most people when they are in that kind of college transition point or they're moving out of their parents' house. And Maybe it would be beneficial if this exercise happens sooner for many of us, but culturally, that's about where it starts to happen. And It's got to happen.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think that leads into the second component that you mentioned of what it takes in order to be authentic. And that's what I would call a values clarification. Values clarifications are a little different than what we believe. Believes are what we hold on to be true by fact and faith. Where values clarification is really the establishing of what's most important in our lives. Most people never really did a values clarification. I think the first time I did a values clarification process in my life was probably when I was 35 years old. And I'm thinking, why did I have to go that long? I probably did it subconsciously all along, but I did it with intention. I actually started to look at the things that were most important to me and started to resort them. And words like this come up. Prosperity. Is prosperity more important to me than happiness? Is happiness more important to me than being in relationship? Is relationships a precursor to being happy? Respect, influence, contribution, family, integrity, fairness, loyalty, equality, autonomy, humor, collaboration. And the list goes on and on and on of different words that we could look at and say, what do those words mean to us? And where is it in the level of importance? I would highly encourage everyone listening here, there's all kinds of values clarification processes that you can check into. Used to be, you'd find them in books. You used to find them in articles. Now the best way to find them is probably do a Google search on values clarification. And you'll get a plethora of different models of these words that just appear on a sheet And it's basically just picking the 8 or 10 or 15 words out of this list of 100 that you would say that are most important to you. And then once you synthesize those down, then put them in a hierarchy of importance. The most important thing for me is happiness. That might be an example. Another person might say the most important thing to them is family. Well, what's family? And then they get clarity on that. And then they make that a priority. The most important thing for me is to be autonomous, where I don't have to depend on other people for my livelihood and my well-being. And autonomy allows me to be more of a contributor. So you see how these things can develop as we go through this clarification process of values. So when we really sort out what we truly believe, and then we go to values clarification, Do you see how this can really bring some clarity and bring some critically thinking processes into your mind that allows you to maybe start being more real and start being more authentic?
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how someone wouldn't just be curious to know, like to check in with themselves, especially if they've never really considered their values before. It seems like a really important exercise that's probably long overdue for many of us.
1: The third thing you mentioned, Brian, was deciding what are going to be the predefined principles that you intend to live by. These are decisions that you've made in advance of situations. So when the situation comes along, you've already made your decision because you've already thought through this predefined principle. What we oftentimes do when situations come along that are hard for us to handle and difficult for us to deal with, we immediately go to somebody else and we start talking and saying, this is my problem, what do you think I should do? And then we start listening to what people say and suggest. So the solution that we have when we run into these situations that we're looking for ways to work through we have a tendency to canvass the opinion of others. We canvass the opinions of our parents, our friends. We might even go to the media. We might even go to social media, throw out the question and we start listening to what everyone else suggests we should do. And of course, that's not living out our predefined principles. That's living out the principles of the people that you're asking. It's not living out your beliefs and values. You're living out the beliefs and values of other people when you go and ask that question so unless we start really sorting out and becoming real clear what our predefined principles are which i call precepts precepts are these predefined principles that determine how we're going to respond in the situations that come up in our life an example of a predefined principle is i read about it in my book it's about the young girl that goes off to college and she's made a predefined principle decision that she's not going to have sex before she gets married. So when situations happened in the moment, as in college they often do, you find yourself in a romantic situation. What are you going to do in that situation? And you find that this person is really the one I really truly love. and This means a lot to me. You get caught up in the heat of the moment. And in the heat of the moment, you make the decision to have sex with that person that you're not married to. Or do you make the decision not to? It's these predefined principles that really determine what we do in those situations. That's just an example of one, but there's many, many others. However, if we don't have these predefined principles in our minds, these I will statements, these I am statements, these intentions, we just kind of blow in the wind. We're like a ship in the ocean with no rudder. We just kind of blow whichever way the wind takes us. We go along with it. So writing these predefined principles out and knowing what they are is basically your rudder of life. So, Brian, as you think about these three things that you mentioned, the beliefs, values, and principles determining how you respond in every situation of your life. Did we adequately break down these three and explain them thoroughly enough for the audience so they can dissect them and begin a process, if they choose to, to become more real, more authentic?
0: Well, it's certainly not an easy thing. And there's going to be constant temptation and different conflicts that could potentially derail you from your predefined principles. And that's just a part of life. I think that it's really up to the individual person to decide, do I want to examine my life or am I just going to keep going with the way things are? And most people, unless there's a lot of pain and suffering, they're probably not going to be inspired to do this analytical process. They're just going to live their life. And that's that. And that's fine. I do that a lot of the time. Sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. And this is a complicated issue. This is a spiritual issue. People are going to do what people are going to do, and you're going to have to deal with situations that are really going to test. I mean, at the risk of sounding superstitious, it's like as soon as you come up with a principle, the forces from the highest to the lowest show up to test you. That's how it is for me anyway. I don't know about other people.
1: Yeah, sometimes these challenges show up for us in our life and they just kind of blow right past us because we don't know what we don't know and we don't even see them as challenges. We don't see that we have any authority over them. We don't see that we have any control over them. So they just kind of pass on by. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't catch ourselves in those. One of the reasons for that is we've really gotten in a situation where we really don't critically think. Conformity, to me, is a result of the absence of critical thought. I find that academia is really part of the problem here because most teachers teach what to think, not how to think. Basically, they teach us to conform, and our parents do that as well. What we have failed to do is really, really help young people critically think. Many will say, I just don't want to think that hard. It doesn't take a lot of critical thought to mimic the behavior of others. Conformists buy into the dogmas, and others seem to be okay with it. After all, it's the best way to be accepted by others. That's sad that we're at that place. And the answer is we simply need to listen, absorb, and play out what we've been told. is really a problem in America today. I find it interesting, this academic Stephen Kamara, PhD. I have this article here. He's entitled his article from the magazine Psychology Today, The Emerging Crisis in Critical Thinking. And he quotes, it is time to rethink early childhood priorities and refocus our efforts as parents and as teachers to emphasize critical thinking and problem-solving and to abandon misguided attempts to induce pseudo-learning using baby genius products and teaching to the test educational materials. In the long run, short-term tricks that artificially and temporarily boost test scores are no match for intuitive parenting and effective teaching, which conveys a lifelong competitive advantage by providing a solid foundation for critically thinking and problem-solving. Interesting that many people are recognizing today that in academia, we are failing to teach students how to critically think. And as they go into their adult worlds, they really don't have the ability to critically think. Part of the best definition to critically thinking I've ever heard was done by Michael Shreven and Richard Paul when they defined it as critically thinking is the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluating information gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. It's a heavy definition, but critically thinking is a heavy process. And I think one of the things that we're failing at in this country today is to really teach critically thinking to the students. For 15 years, I taught seniors in high school. The class was called Business Character Values, and it was a critically thinking class. In fact, the administrator of the school said, this is the best critically thinking class we have in our school. It was amazing to me when they did a valuation of the school. The accreditation board came into the school, gave the school the accreditation, but the school was hoping to get an exemplary level of accreditation. And what happened was they met all the criteria except for one thing, and the academic board did not give them the exemplary status. And when they asked why, they told the administration and the teachers, because you're failing to teach critically thinking at a high level. In fact, the only class that you're teaching critically thinking is Dr. McKinley's class. That's only reaching 10% of your students. So the school made an effort to teach critically thinking. And what I found was very interesting. They decided to use Bloom's taxonomy, his pyramid of critical thought. And it's basically from this definition, that starts with skillfully conceptualized, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluating information. It was really a process of higher level thinking. What happened in that model was that many of the teachers were just going through that process of climbing up this pyramid of thought, and they were just doing it for the student. Basically, what the student got is they heard the teacher pontificate about how they got to the conclusions they got, but they never gave the student a chance to come to their own conclusions. One of the things that I did to stimulate critically thinking in my classroom was basically had a core principle that there's no one right answer. And of course, that is counterintuitive in so many academic situations when you say there's only one right answer. Well, no, there's one right answer, and this is what it is. And we need to teach the kids this. And I said, do we really? Why don't we give them a chance to have the wrong answer and then process them through it and let them critically think it through and see what they come to by adding new information and giving them a chance to walk up the pyramid of thought and come to a higher conclusion themselves. And this is what we're not doing in education today. We're not teaching critically thinking and not allowing kids to process their thoughts through. And I think that's a big missing piece. And I think when they go into adult world, it's very difficult to ask them to do these three things, reevaluating what we truly believe looking at what we truly value and what is the predefined principles that we're going to decide to live by. We just don't give any thought to those. Frankly, I think parents and teachers want the kids to believe what they believe. So they pretty much present it that way, and they don't want to teach critically thinking at all. In fact, there's some school systems in the country that are more religious-based. When you start talking about teaching critically thinking, they reject it. They don't want anything that teaches critically thinking. They just want the students to believe what they're telling them to believe and not teach critical thinking at all. And I think that's sad. It's really causing us to be more conforming as a society and less authentic and real.
0: Well, when you're trying to create a monoculture, critical thinking is a threat to that establishment. Yes. Because then all of a sudden you have people asking deeper questions and second-guessing maybe what they were told. And, of course, a monoculture doesn't really want to make a lot of room for authenticity. They want you to be authentically conformist.
1: Well, you're talking about the woke culture now. Woke culture is a monoculture. It's wanting everyone to think one way, and if you dare to think another way, look out. Get ready to be attacked. Get ready to be labeled. Get ready to be marginalized.
0: I often compare that leftist, woke culture to my church culture. Okay. They are establishments that are trying to create a monoculture. And it's very similar. And anybody who was raised in a school that was attached to a church, whether it was Catholic or Protestant, doesn't matter, they will know exactly what I'm talking about. And I didn't realize when I was there that there was more brainwashing outside of it. I thought that I was in a culture that was one of the only vestiges of an older culture that was trying to brainwash young people. I didn't know that there was another cultural establishment that was gonna be trying to brainwash me and my peers once I was out of there. Like when I got out of the church and out of that school, which was connected to the church, I was like, okay, sweet, I'm done dealing with people who are trying to brainwash me. Boy, was I wrong. And honestly, I think dealing with an establishment that was trying to brainwash me as a youngster has equipped me for dealing with this next-level establishment that's trying to brainwash me and my peer group into their culture, because I see the signs of resistance to critical thinking And the reason we're talking about critical thinking right now is because it is the catalyst, it's the pathway, it's the process, it's the door that you walk through to arrive at authenticity. You don't get to authenticity without critical thinking.
1: No, you do not.
0: You have to examine your life. That's a critical thinking process. Examine your beliefs, examine your values, examine your principles. That's all engaging your prefrontal cortex. When you do that, you start creating a unique perspective, a unique identity, and you realize, oh, this culture is trying to brainwash me into thinking that my identity has to be this way. And if I don't check these boxes, then I can't actually identify as this person. And that's a bunch of malarkey. And anybody who is a critical thinker knows that there is nuance to individuality and identity. And, you know, you don't see it until you see it. And you can't get free from it until you see it and start critically thinking about it. So it's the only way forward, really, is to examine your beliefs and values and principles and say, I feel different. I have a slightly nuanced, different opinion. I've been exposed to different information that has caused me to kind of think differently. I have a different narrative in my head. And only by having friction do people start to distinguish themselves as unique individuals. And in a monoculture, there's just no room for that. The elites in a monoculture want everyone to you know, wear the uniform, say the creed, and go along with the program and authentic people will do that only if they've critically thought out how it benefits them and that they actually want to authentically conform. Conformity without critical thinking is being a robot. Conformity with critical thinking is authentic, which sounds kind of crazy. But if you've given it thought, and you've examined your life, then you are electing to go with the flow. And that's different than just going with the flow. And one of the most impactful stories is a war story that is really hard to swallow in Vietnam when the soldiers were under a lot of stress, feeling quite a bit of animosity toward enemy combatants and people who were similar to the enemy combatants. And you have a situation like the Milai massacre where all of these disgruntled soldiers are conforming to this crazy attack and they're all just going forward with this massacre and perpetrating this massacre against elderly people and women and innocent children. And when that was all called into question later on stateside, A bunch of these men said, I was just following orders. Well, there were Nazis at Nuremberg who made the same excuse. And there was one man, Commander Thompson, he was a helicopter pilot. And when he saw what was going on, he landed the helicopter and ordered his gunners to turn his guns on his own men. And he started evacuating civilians out of the area. And he said, if our own soldiers are going to do this to civilians, we're going to fight back. And it's a little civil war within a war. But out of this whole operation of people, you only had one man who was still critically thinking and said, "Mm, "Okay, I'm not going to follow that order because that's not right. And this is an extreme example, of course. But where do your orders come from? And are you going to go along with doing something that you know is wrong, or are you going to step up and say, I'm not going to follow that order because I'm a critical thinker, and that's wrong? Yeah. It's a real challenge.
1: It is, and, you know, that's a great story, and we talked before about doing the right thing no matter what and willing to take the consequences of your decision. And I think that's key. How do we as parents, and maybe bosses with employees, teach or elevate the level of critically thinking in the people that we're raising or leading? How do leaders develop critically thinking in their flock, in their children and, and their employees? When I think of that question, the first thing is, We need to first present the circumstances and get clear on what the circumstances is and understand the nuances of the situation. And then we need to make sure that we are asking our children what they think about the process. We have a tendency to tell them what they should do. We have a tendency to tell them what to think. And one of the things I've talked to you about as a parent is to ask your kids to critically think it through by asking them questions, what would you do in this situation? What do you think is the right thing to do? What do you value the most? When you're trying to make a decision about what to do, do a little mini values clarification. Well, what's most important to you long-term? Is it most important to be with your friends on their birthday? Is it more important to be at your grandmother's 80th birthday party, wherever it might be? And let the child start making the decision. You can start asking questions that can start beginning the process of critically thinking. And I think there's much we can do instead of telling and doing the thinking for our kids. Whenever they're asking us to do the thinking for them, whenever they're asking us to make a decision for them, that's our cue to then say, well, what would you do? What do you think is the best way? If you were me, what do you think I should do? What do you think would be a fair punishment for you for hitting your brother? You know, And give them a chance to critically think the consequences of the situation. Brian, have you had any experiences around really on purpose developing critical thinking skills in your kids?
0: Yeah, I do that all the time. In fact, I just recently caught my son. He's having a situation at school, and I caught wind of it from his mother, and I got wind of it from his grandmother, and I didn't really do anything about it. I kind of let it be. I asked him about it a couple of times, and he didn't really have much to say about it. And then again, I hear from his grandmother that this situation is continuing. So I sit him down and talk to him, and he starts telling me everything that's going on with some friends at school. And I really challenged him and said, okay, so you haven't come to me with this. You took it to your grandma, and you took it to your mom. And he's like, oh, yeah, and they called them names, and they're really upset. And I said, yeah, 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 but why didn't you bring it to me? And he's like, I don't know. Can we talk about it a little more? And then I asked him again, you know, why didn't you bring this to me first? And he's like, I don't know. And I said, well, I have an idea, if you're willing to hear it. And he said, sure. I said, could it be that you didn't tell me about this situation because you knew I was going to ask you about what you were doing wrong? In other words, when you go to your grandma, she immediately takes your side and blames the other kids. When you go to your mom, she immediately wants to protect you and takes your side and makes it the other kid's problem and the other parent's problem or the teacher's problem. And could it be that you've been avoiding telling me about it because you knew that I was going to make it about you and about what you need to do differently? And he kind of smiled and looked down, like, you caught me, Dad. Like, yes, that is why I didn't want to talk to you about it, because I knew you were going to say to me, well, what are you doing to cause this situation? And sure enough, he has responsibility in this situation. And I laid that idiom on him that you say so often, which is that you have responsibility in everything that happens to you. And I told him that, and I broke that down, what that means in more childish terms. And I said, so when you can prove to me that you have taken the steps to avoid these conflicts and you're no longer being a tattletale and you're no longer escalating the situation, when I'm certain of that, then I will intervene and I will go to bat for you. But I'm not going to go to bat for you because you're a part of this mischief and I can guarantee I won't have to go to bat for you. If you knock off the mischief. So the rule is keep your distance, keep your mouth shut and these will probably go away on their own. And he seemed to agree with that. But it was interesting how he was actively avoiding coming to me with it because he knew I was going to make him go through a critical thinking process. And like you said, sometimes we don't want to think that hard. It's easier to go to the people who are going to commiserate with us and take our side and blame with us and go right to that red behavior with us, like you talk about. It's kind of scary to go to the blue behavior and say, now what am I doing in this situation to cause these problems?
1: Yeah, that's a great example. Oftentimes it's the hardest thing of transitioning in these dichotomies from the less than desirable side, this blaming side, the unforgiving side, the judgment side, to a place of taking personal responsibility critically thinking things through, making the right decision. And it's tough sometimes to be a person of character, and that's really what we're talking about here. And it's sometimes easier to just keep blaming and being critical of others. That's what we often do. Well, this has been a great discussion, Brian. Thank you for joining me this morning, and I hope everyone else found it to be meaningful. Please contact us if you have any thoughts at ray at raymckinley.com. Otherwise, join us again next week for Ride the Elephant Today. Have a great week, everyone.
0: Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today your feedback is important to us and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week.